You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Prue. Well, there's a jolly man sitting next to me, and it's not St. Nick. No. No. I, it's Mick. Mick. Yeah, I guess that's close enough. <laughs> uh, you know, we're doing something a little bit different this year rather than just slamming down a list of wines to buy and Books stuff that we loved. Yeah. And I mean, I'm sure that's going to be on your website, michaelpincuswinereview.com. Now, I know you put one together. I, I on definitely. On a wine review dot something. CA, right? Yeah, CA. Yeah. And, Do you uh, not own the uh, dot com of that? I don't own the dot com of it. I'm too cheap. You know, you know what? I, I do own michaelpincus.ca, but uh, michaelpincus.com is owned by some doctor. <laughs> it's true, Dr. Michael Pincus. Oh, isn't that a scary thought? Yeah. He, used to be on, he used to be on your radio station at one point. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. too. Yeah. Uh, so what we're going to do is uh, we're going to do the lazy, half-assed thing that every fucking show on television is doing at this time of year. It's like your best <laughs> of? And we're putting together a clip show! Oh, yeah, baby. Oh, wait, we should get that that golf clap. So uh, you and I have picked out our favorite clips from the year. I sort of like shocking moments, stunning moments. And if you haven't heard some of these podcasts, hopefully this will incentivize you to go and listen to some of these uh, older episodes because we had some pretty, pretty awesome interviews this year. And, that, you know, as you said, shocking moments. The, the ones that you didn't get were like when you dropped Trow in the studio. <laughs> Everyone knows I never do this podcast while wearing pants. That's right. I am not wearing any pants. So um, I guess our legacy series has been picking up some steam. It's wildly popular. And uh, we're going to be lining up some great guests for the upcoming year. Uh, I, I don't want to name drop anyone yet, but we've nope. been slowly working our way through Niagara. And I think we're almost at the point chronologically where we might start heading into Prince Edward County. Yeah, I think it's time to start uh, looking at some of the folks there. But uh, the guy that we got uh, this year, he was our first legacy of the year, was Alan Jackson. And I remember talking to Alan and he said something that now we weren't in the same room at the time but i'm pretty sure i heard your chin hit your desk yes because i've been fairly outspoken on merlot in the province and that's not saying there aren't a few places that make favorites that i like i'm looking at you peninsula ridge but i think more often than not i'm a little disappointed so when alan jackson said this in terms of varietals that's a very good you, and you're not going to want to like the answer to this. To me, the I I used to and still think that the the kind of masthead red variety for for Niagara is Merlot, because I think we can make the best Merlot in the world. That's how I think of it. I think most winemakers think of it is who can make the best of anything in the world, or can yeah. you have a shot at that? And for us, for Merlot, as I said, it's very temperature sensitive, so. California Merlot, Australian Merlot, but New Zealand makes great Merlots because they have that great. Washington, yep. in, if you do it in the right place, makes nice Merlot. Okanagan Merlots more ticklish. Yeah, I'm still picking my jaw up off the floor. I I can name at least five or six great wineries that make Merlot. But I think even for yourself, neither 
neither you nor I would put Merlot in our top five. You know, sort of that mighty handful that's emerging in Riesling, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Cabernet Franc, Gamay. and Gamay. But uh, I, I still am not opposed to Merlot as you are. And I think there are better places for Merlot. I think British Columbia does some great Merlot. Yes. California, you know, obviously, you get a good California Merlot. It is worth its weight in gold, no matter what the guy from Sideways says. I, I would agree with that. Uh, I would actually double down on BC Merlot. Just it, it manages to achieve that that gorgeous, rich, plush ripeness without being too jammy or cloying while maintaining this beautiful acidity. So and also st and still needs a couple of years. I, I just uh, uh, recently tried uh, Burrowing Owl 2012 Merlot. Oh, Burrowing Owl, and yeah. it was 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 an absolute delight. Yep, that's uh, definitely a good call with that. Um, so trucking along as the year progressed, uh, you and I did something really interesting at Cuvée, and uh, I'm thinking we might do a Cuvée repeat this year because we've upgraded our equipment a little bit. Uh, last year, some of the interviews were really hard to hear, but we walked around the floor with a microphone and snagged whoever we could. It was man on the street type Absolutely. Stuff. Well, I mean, Cuvée is sort of the anyone and everyone of the, of the wine industry, so you never know who you're going to run into. Uh, but we had a chance to run into... Tony Aspler and Michael Vaughn to get their two cents about wine scoring. And the interesting part about that is that they were working together. And that seems to be a big question to people. Why are they working together? And we found out why. We are tasting together to uh, ensure that people get some good tasting notes. Right, Michael? Right. We're going to bring uh, a degree of sanity back to the uh, scores that we see every day. Because we don't necessarily think that, you know, the $11 wines are deserving of the 94, 95 points that they get every day in the newspaper. So we're trying to really bring everything down to earth. I think what we have is an overinflated wine scoring market. Now that was interesting. And it's nice to hear them say they're they're looking to, you know, put some, some uh, sanity yep. back into the world of scoring, which caused us to obviously do our own scoring uh, podcast uh, later in the year which is interesting because we did the, the scoring podcast based on uh a lot of the scores coming from some of the writers in ottawa um who get better wine than we get apparently I well i mean there's there's i really still i hesitate to throw any names out there but if you do take a look at that the, yeah it just wouldn't be a podcast without a cameo from henry no not at your place uh, anyway but i mean like i know we already we, we already said what we need to be Keep it going, Henry. We already said what needed to be said on, on that particular podcast, but there, there's something weird going on with the scoring from the writers in Ottawa. And just recently, I had to call out... Uh, I, I just I couldn't let it stand. I had to call out Carolyn Hammond from the Toronto Star uh, for coming up with a batch of, of scores for wines less than $10 that were 93 and 95 and you know what I, I picked up a bottle of that that 95 point wine just out of my morbid curiosity and it was a very good wine and you know what carolyn is a really good taster and she's a good writer i i'm gonna give her her credit but that article was a fucking joke yes and i remember your uh your tweet about that and uh conrad edgebeck uh, piped in so uh, a little bit of a little bit of controversy that you sparked so i'm i'm proud of you <laughs> I mean, the bottom line with, with scores is you're doing a disservice to the winery you're writing about, and you're doing a disservice to your readers and listeners 
if you're not scoring your wines fairly. That's my bottom line on that. Like, I, I have talked to some writers who say, you know, if a bottle is under, you know, $10, if it's under $15, it can't score, you know, $93.95. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's not true. That's not the reason why a 95-point wine was nine ninety five. It was just not that good a bottle of wine. Well, and I mean... Just sort of the, the, the final point that, that I'm going to make on this, too, is you and I have discussed how our scoring works. And, and I'll be honest, if a wine knocks it out of the park, it'll get a bump up in its, its score for its value. If I find that really great bottle of $15 wine, and, and you came up with a score recently uh, from Vineland Estates, just the regular Vineland Cabernet Franc, which if I'm not mistaken is general list at the LCBO. 2016 Vineland Cab Franc. It was outstanding. I had it at uh, at originally at four. Tasted it again. Made it four plus. Then read my review. Read this that everything. And I'm like, I gotta go four and a half on this. I've got to. I know it's fourteen ninety five, but I've just got to go four and a half. It's just that good a bottle, and you still haven't tried it, have you? No, I still haven't tried it, but I plan on trying it soon. But I mean, the thing is, scores like that are are are, are few and far between. Yeah, I don't usually throw those out so like i remember doing a, a recap last year of my scores i'd only given one wine a five i think i gave three or four i didn't give out a lot of five star reviews this year but there were definitely some great wines um so moving on another thing that we've had an opportunity to do this year is a little bit of travel taking this podcast on the road uh, but I wanted this interview so bad. You did. Now, I, 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 I'll tell you, we'd take it on the road. You haven't heard them yet, but we did uh, end up in uh, Quebec, in Saguenay. Yes. And you will be hearing those uh, in the new year. Uh, we got some great interviews from great people in Saguenay and had a great time at that festival. I can't recommend it high enough. Uh, but you wanted to grab Paul Hobbs, yes. not in any kind of Harvey Weinstein <laughs> way. You it just, just wouldn't be a year-end podcast without talking about current events. Yeah, so um, I, I know you wanted to grab him, and I was going to go with you and just... Uh, well, he's a very busy man. Yeah. I mean, he runs uh, he runs a, a couple of wineries that he's attached with uh, his eponymous winery, Paul Hobbs in California, Um Felino Vino Cobos in, in Argentina. Yep. And on top of that, he's a consulting winemaker for Stratus and a few other places. And I mean, the reason I, I wanted to get the interview with him was because of how passionately he spoke of the Ontario wine industry. And uh, he has a vineyard planted in the Finger Lakes. And that's where you finally caught up with him. And it just so happened you, you got the interview, I think, the day before. And I was like, I can't go but you hopped in your car yep. and you jetted on them and he goes i can give you a half an hour my uh my daughter's graduating or something and yep. you still went i'm gonna go microphone in hand and uh you got a, a really good interview with him and it, i mean it was really interesting because um we got to spend a lot of time talking about climate change and, and global warming and the environmental impact of winemaking i know it's a question you you like to roll your eyes at because i throw it out whenever I get the chance to, but I mean, it's a really important question to ask of winemakers, but that wasn't the most interesting part of the interview to me. The most interesting part of the interview to me was listening to him uh, wax poetic about Riesling. I know I wanted to do Riesling, coming back to New York State. It's a variety that I love, it's kind of the variety that got me going okay. in, my, in my career. Okay. 
And uh, even when I was at Davis, I mean, it was one of my favorite, particularly in the, you know, in the beginning as I was learning about wine. For some reason, Riesling was a great segue into other wines. So I know you came back from that interview totally jazzed. <laughs> Uh, your mind, and that's one of the things you, you said. You, you've got to listen to this Paul Hobbs interview, uh, and I and I and I did. And you and before I even could really get to it, you sent it over, and you said you got to hear the part about Riesling. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's the thing about the Finger Lakes. There's a lot going on there with with Riesling, and uh, if you go to my website, AndreWineReview.ca, I will have a full write up on my trip that I haven't done yet. I've been lazy at writing it because, unfortunately, we don't get any any Finger Lake Riesling in the LCBO. Hopefully, that does change. Um, there was we some, don't get any New York wine. I think there, there was one that came through uh, earlier this year in the early fall, late summer. Uh, there's a lot of potential with what's going on in the Finger Lakes. I don't think they've quite figured it out yet. Uh, I think some of them have. I think some of them really have. Yes. Like, I, I went to places like uh, Boundary Breaks and uh bloomer creek these were two wineries that I, I will be rushing back to in a hurry to to check out but um it looks like we're a little farther away from paul hobbs the finger lakes winery being up and running um we're a little bit farther away than i would have than i was hoping hoping for we'll have to wait probably a few more years before we see those wines but i i really do believe that that's going to be the game changer the uh, tsn turning point for the finger lakes i when i was there i loved this uh, sparkling wine by lamoureux landing i thought it was great five years on lees all chardonnay you would have loved it oh sounds like it's right up my alley yes it was um i know we're talking about riesling and chardonnay but um we have another clip of one of our other legacy podcasts we're coming oh, up on. Oh, yeah. We finally tracked down. Everybody's always been asking, well, me, because I, I, this is the first time you ever met him. Yes. But they were always saying, whatever happened to Jim Warren? Where's Jim Warren? What's Jim Warren doing? And I thought, let's see if we can track down where Jim Warren is. And it just so happens I had an old email from him. And uh, I, I saw maybe he would answer it. And lo and behold... I seem to have known where Jim Warren was because, yes, he responded back. And we went uh, on the road again. We went to Hamilton. Uh, that's where Jim's, uh, you know, enjoying his retirement. Is yep. that what's going on there? Yeah, sure. I think so. Uh, and, uh, and and Jim and, and um, Andre met for the very first time. And Andre asked some very interesting questions, learned well, a few extra things. And that was the second time. That I've heard your chin drop. Yes. But this time I watched it drop. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, it's one of the questions that we've we've taken to asking some of these pioneers, going all the way back to uh, Donald Zeraldo. Uh, it's just about varietals because it's it's sort of one of the one of the things whether it's it's a problem or not is a big question mark. I don't think it's a problem because I don't want to stifle the creativity in, in winemaking. But uh, we've been asking these people what varietal they would stake the reputation of the Ontario wine industry on. And interestingly, it's been different for everybody's different. Everyone, and, Everybody. And, and it hasn't really been that core five that people are really jazzed about these days. Yeah. So this time, Jim comes out with this. Even though we're getting pretty good at growing grapes, there still is that huge risk associated with viniferous um, that's, that every once in a while comes to bite us. And that's when I say maybe we should have some hybrids in the ground too. But um, see, I'm a little old fashioned. I, I kind of thought the hybrids 
for what they were, were, were pretty decent, at least compared to what they replaced. And there's no doubt that vinifers are, are better grapes for making wine. So there you go. Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, I love making both of those. They've always been a, a, a real challenge for me. And there's, and there's lots you can do with them. You know, it's really interesting that he, he did talk about hybrids. In all fairness, he did double down on on uh, vinifera. And Chardonnay. He said Chardonnay <laughs> was the grape he loved to make. He couldn't get enough. And if you haven't heard the uh, the podcast with Jim Warren, you got to hear it because he really waxes a little poetic on Chardonnay. But what, what I found really interesting was um, we did this interview with Jim before we went to Saguenay. And if anyone has picked up the latest issue of Quench, uh, there's an article about what's going on in, in Quebec. Uh, when I had a chance to taste the wines from Domaine Saint-Jacques in, in Saguenay, a large part of the Quebec wine industry and a large part for the, the, the near future and, and probably for... A little bit longer is going to be hybrids but um the hybrid wines in the right hands um work yeah they work thanks, thanks for saving me there i was sort of trailed off there but i mean well we talked to the spec <laughs> brothers he was dream, the house. dreaming of a glass of wine well it's just sort of trying to find a way to to, to, to be eloquent about it because let, let's face it uh, and i mean jim kind of hit on this too a really well-made wine made out of hybrids is never going to reach the levels of you know a beautifully well-made chardonnay whether it's a hot vintage or, or cool vintage like i mean a, a hybrid grape will still taste like a hybrid grape in bottle but these wines aren't awful these wines are drinkable they're good they're no they're affordable. not like they used to be but you also look at uh, places like nova scotia that's doing it northern ontario that's doing it they're they're really doing some interesting stuff with some interesting grapes that are not the norm like look at uh look at something like marquette yep uh i i know that's starting to get a lot of uh buzz and a lot of the wineries that are in the what they call emerging regions yep are starting to look at things such as marquette well and i think we put a lot of attention on on the red hybrid grapes and uh, like I'll, I'll admit that the red ones seem to be a little trickier it's really tricky to find a red, a bottle of red wine made with hybrids that knocks it out of, out of the park. But uh, you mentioned Nova Scotia. The Tidal Bay wines are are really good, like really good bar none. I don't care what kind of grapes they're made with. They speak of the the region that they come from. They're perfect with the the cuisine of the area. Like these are wines built to made go with seafood, and they're made with hybrids. And that is, in the right hands, good winemaking. It is good winemaking. Is good winemaking. And, and good winemakers can usually make good wine from whatever they're given. Except dandelions. I really don't think dandelion wine is my cup of tea. I've never had it, have you? Uh, no. But I have had an... Uh, I've had not... Now, I know orange wine is, is the big uh, buzzwords this year. But I've actually had orange wine that was made from oranges in Florida once. That is the nastiest shit you will ever have. I'll take your word for it. Oh, that was See, it's still in my head. So, uh, I guess we can seg into our last clip on this seg. Clip show. Yep. Seg. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. I can use big words. You millennials. <laughs> you like to shorten I, everything. KFC. <laughs> I uh, am going to be drinking a lot of this man's wine around my house over the holidays. 
Oh, I'm sure you will. Because uh, you like slutty Chardonnay. <laughs> Derek Barnett of Meldville of Carlo, and formerly of Laley and Southbrook, has made a couple of um, small batch, sort of single barrel or barrel select Chardonnays under his Meldville label. And this barrel select that he's made, it just has this complexity and depth and grandiose. See, you and I haven't had the debate yet. And one of my highest scoring wines this year is his Canadian Oak. Which I score very high as well. I think it's better than this barrel select that that you speak of. Uh, you and I can debate this all day. But I mean, it's it's a moot point because this is when it, it's going to come down to subjectivity. Personal uh, taste. Be, because both of these wines are really well made. Both of these wines are really well made. And probably the most exciting wines Derek has made since uh, leaving Lely. And, and that's no knocks against Carlo because Carlo has some great wines coming out too. The yeah. Cabernet Franc, Prince Edward County. I really just don't want to be taking away from his work Work there saying this. Sorry to be politically correct, but these two Chardonnays are really, really exciting wines. Yeah, no, these they're very good. And even you know what? Even if you can put your hands on the regular Chardonnay, that second edition, that $20 yep. bottle, yep. that's a good, solid Chardonnay. But these two, this Barrel Select and the Canadian Oak, they take it to even another level. Well, it's a step up. Even, even the first edition Chardonnay, if you have a bottle kicking around in, in your cellar, it was amazing to me when I had a chance to retaste it a year and a bit later after my first tasting because that first edition out of the bottle was great value. It was 1995. It was fairly straightforward. It certainly wasn't the most exciting Chardonnay in, in the province, but great value, something that you would be happy to have in your house. Always have. Well, we, we finished ours before before the year was out. Fast forward to a year later, I opened this bottle and it had evolved into this complex, you know, mineral driven, still with all kinds of fruit and had like a flinty note to it. It's just like, what the hell? This is that $20 Chardonnay last year. And the thing is, Derek is just a master of making wines that are, are built for a cellar. Yeah, built built for, for aging. And he always has, reds and whites. Yeah. So um, knowing what we know about what he's doing now, yes, we wanted to know a little bit about his past yes. and what he thought of his former place of business. Well, we just wanted to find out what the hell happened at Lely. And this is what he told us. Then there is wine, and it's all old wine. Now, I don't want you to talk about what they're doing now, but is there anything that you could tell us about what happened uh, at Laley? Like, how it came to an end with you, with your presence there? Dead silence. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the place was for sale, and... Uh, and I had wanted to uh, to continue on uh, as being winemaker right up, uh, really, until we uh, the day it, or day or so before it closed, and I um, it, it 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 just came to an end, and it didn't seem like the right fit for me uh, and to continue on, and so that's really the be all and end of it, really. I, we knew it was coming. Um, Donna and David were. Uh, um, Getting tired of growing grapes and uh, um, wanted to uh, to put on the market and, and it happened. And that's I mean it, and it sold and uh, you know people people the people who bought it were were to continue on 
uh, growing grapes and, and making wine in uh, whatever way they wanted to do that. But I didn't feel comfortable in myself continuing on. Well, I know we're still at, at the point where, uh, you know, there's still tons of, of rumors and uh, I don't think anyone really knows what has happened at Lely or, or, or what's going on. I know the, the current owner, as of today, when we're recording this, is still in prison. And I, I walked into Lely in uh, November and there is not a brand new bottle on the shelf. It's all stuff that uh, that Derek made and I think they've it looks like they've even raised the prices on them too uh, so well I do hope that we we do see a turnaround at, at that winery at some point in the future but it doesn't look like uh, there's any signs of uh, a turnaround or any progress happening there anytime soon yeah that's too bad so I so mean, we, we, I, both, we both took that intake at the same time. It's like, we're yeah, ready well, we to, just, I don't know yeah we're, we're ready. We're ready. We're ready to move on. And the thing is, um, I want to take this opportunity to thank everyone who listens to this podcast and, and supports us. Uh, 2017 has been a really big year for us. We took this podcast weekly. We've been working really hard at uh, lining up some great interviews. And that's what I'd like to step in and thank everybody who has taken the time to sit down with us either by phone or literally sit down with us uh, and the Speck brothers for doing the very first ever two, two guys, guys talking, talking live, which was fantastic. We're going to do that one again. Go ahead now. I yeah. Well, and, and I mean, keep yourselves locked in cause uh, we're getting better and we got bigger guests coming and uh, this is just the beginning. I know that we're getting uh, better thing is subjective. You know that. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Uh, but I mean, we're going to be doing a repeat on our champagne flute debate where, I mean, you and I very politely agreed to disagree, but I'm fighting dirty. We're sitting down with Olivier Krug in the upcoming weeks, and he's going to take you to school. Yeah, whatever. We'll see how that goes. And, um, oh, I'm uh, I'm off to Australia. So yes. we're going to be doing some stuff. Take it, talk about taking it on the road. I'm taking it around the uh, and, other uh, side of the world. While you're gallivanting around there, we're going to have some guest hosts filling in and doing your duty. So uh, yeah, there'll be some other people. Duty. <laughs> there'll be some other people keeping me in check. But I mean, it'll be good. We'll have some new voices out there to to hear. And um, yeah, keep it locked in. Uh, and thank you very much for listening. I'm Michael Pincus from MichaelPincusWineReview.com. I'm Andre Pru from AndreWineReview.ca. And happy holidays. Best of the season to you. We'll see you in 2018. You can't end it like that. Good night. There we go. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes.